Well, as we start the message today, let me share a few words with you that kind of switch the theme of what we've just talk, been talking about here. And I want you to think about what comes to mind when you hear the word mediocre. What about lukewarm? Or half-hearted? Do, that, do those evoke any, any, anything positive within you? I mean, if you have an annual performance review, do you want one of those words to show up on the review? Like, oh, yeah, he's, he's kind of a mediocre employee. Or, yeah, she really does her job in a, in a very uh, half-hearted way. Right? I mean, we don't, we don't typically think of those as, as something that is uh, very positive. In fact, you could really say that in, in, in so many different aspects of life. Have you ever known an athlete that had all kinds of potential but just didn't put their heart into it? Just really didn't think about the training or, or really didn't finish strong in the midst of competition? I, I uh, came across a picture, maybe you've seen this before. Uh, we probably guessed what is going to happen to the guy that begins to celebrate the touchdown before he actually gets it, right? Uh, and so uh, we, we've seen that, that, that kind of, of effort. And uh, in fact, it can even carry over into the classroom. You know, you have a student that has, that has all kinds of potential, but they just don't really put the time in, or when they get to the test, they, they just aren't, aren't really prepared. In fact, I came across this that, that I thought uh, was an interesting way to take a, a test where you are supposed to match up the, the invention to the inventor. And, and I know we've got quite a few students in here, so do not try this, right? I don't want to be blamed uh, down the road for the way that, uh, that you fill these, these tests out. But I mean, uh, every area of life, you know, you can, you can find the way to do something halfway. And it's like, well, what about worship? I mean, does anybody ever come to worship and it's kind of like a, a half-hearted thing where it's just, it's so difficult, you find yourself even, even bored? You know, trying to stay awake. I mean, I feel for this guy. I mean, he's, he's struggling. I mean, he's just, just not able to, to really stay awake. But he has a strategy. I mean, if you look at the next picture, I mean, he's, he's working hard. At, uh, so, so I'm going to be watching today if I see anybody that's just really struggling, you know, that are trying to keep, keep the eyes open. But, uh, you know, any time we come to the Lord, in a time of worship like this, I mean, there is that challenge, that struggle to, to make sure it's not just checking the box, not just going through the motion, but, but as, 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 as uh, Trey was praying earlier, that, that you know, we really feel like we're all in, that we're here, that we're ready to, to engage the Lord. And, and yet we know that our worship is even beyond this one time a week that we're together, right? I mean, really, uh, the, the, the book of Colossians tells us that whatever we do, we want to do for his glory. And so I think the message today as we think about what it means to not be half-hearted worshipers, that it's something that is very practical, something that will, will <coughs> excuse me, carry on even into the way that we live life day by day. And so we are in the book of Malachi. Uh, it's a series that we're, we're going through the book. It's a series entitled Refined Faith. Because as we will see, as we work through this book, that the, that the people of God in that time, they were having their faith refined. And, uh, and, and, and God was at work. He was giving them uh, insight and information into where they were, where, how they stood before him, what they needed to consider so that they could grow closer to him. And as we go through the book, I think we're going to find... Some, some areas in which we as well can apply and we can take note. We said last week that Malachi being the last book in the Old Testament, it both concludes the Old Testament as well as connects to the New Testament. And so it's a very important book. Malachi is a prophet of God speaking to a people who were discouraged. Remember, we saw last week that, that they had come back from captivity and their, their nation just is not like it was when they left. It had been, it had been taken over. A lot of their, their, their villages, their towns, their homes, even their temple 
had been pillaged and they were, they were depressed. They were discouraged. They were wondering how all of this could have happened to them. We saw last week that that as, uh, uh, as Malachi came to, to speak to the people, that he came with, with six different arguments, six different areas that he brought up. And, and each of these arguments is set up almost like, a, like a, a statement, then followed by a question, and then followed by uh, information. And we're going to see that same flow today. Uh, Malachi is going to make, a, make, a, make a, a statement that's like an accusation. They're going to question it. And then he's going to give them a fuller response. Now, last week, the accusation had to do with the fact that they had lost their love for God. They, in fact, had questioned God's love for them. And we, we said last week that that really is a theme that we'll see throughout the book of Malachi, that, that when people lose that love for God, they lose love for one another. We see throughout the society that it's impacted. And we're going to see today that it even impacts their worship. If they've lost love for God, they certainly will not approach their time of worship uh, with, with, a, with a full heart. They will come divided. They will come lukewarm. They will come mediocre. They will come complaining about even needing to be before the Lord. So today we pick back up. And really the, uh, the, the, the main idea is that they had forgotten the object of their worship. Here's what, here's what I've put together as the main point for the message. It's a warning to those who worshiped God in vain. And it's a reminder of who is being worshiped so that one can worship God and live for him with an appropriate response. And so I do believe that this is a very practical subject for us to consider. There may be some areas here today that the Lord uses to get our attention, just to help us to refocus on who he is, why it is that we want to worship him and declare his praises, and why we want to live for him each and every day. So with that in mind, let's pick back up in, uh, in Malachi chapter 1. We've already looked at the first five verses. Let's pick back up in verse 6. It says, a son honors his father and a servant his master. But if I am a father, where is my honor? And if I am a master, where is your fear of me? Says the Lord of armies to you priests who despise my name. Yet you ask, how have we despised your name? So we get the idea that a statement is made that's an accusation, even written to the religious leaders, the priests, as well as those who would worship. And so today we have, uh, we're going to see two principles to help focus our time of worship. So just, just two points in the, ser- in the, uh, in the sermon today, not, not three. And when I mentioned that in the, in the first service, I actually got an amen for that. Yeah, I was like, okay, all right, thank you very much. So anyway, here's the first one. Recognize the nature of God. You may have noticed that in, the, in verse 6, there were some titles given about who God is, that he is a father, that he is a master, that he is a Lord. So let's briefly think through, what do those titles mean? How, how could they help prompt us in the way that we think of him and in the way that we worship him? The first one is God is a father. He is a heavenly father. And so just think, when, when, you, when you consider the fatherhood of God, what comes to your mind? Do you think of a, of a father who, who cares for his children? Maybe, maybe words like protects, guides, loves, um, 
all of these positive attributes of, of what God is doing, the benefits that we have when we say that God is our Father. But let me ask you, how many times when we think about God as the Heavenly Father, do we think of it from the perspective of our responsibility? Because I think, I think most of the time when I think of God as Father, I'm thinking about the things I just mentioned. I'm not thinking about the question that he asked through Malachi. And that is, if I am your father, how then should you respond to me? And he even asks, where is my honor? We know that, that we're called to honor our earthly parents. We're certainly called to honor our heavenly father. And this word in the Hebrew is, is kabod, and it, it, it really means something that is heavy. It means honor, but it also means weight. It's like you are attaching something weighty, something important to the name of God. That's what this idea of honor is speaking of. Now, when God isn't viewed in this way, when he isn't viewed as a father, when he isn't viewed as one who needs to be honored, then worship becomes boring. Worship becomes something that, that is, uh, uh, that is uh, uh, bothersome, something that is an inconvenience because of the way that we're thinking about God. In fact, Half-hearted worship could also be described as being lukewarm. Listen to what G. Campbell Morgan said about lukewarmness. He said, it's the worst form of blasphemy. And that's a strong word, isn't it? Have you ever thought about that? To be lukewarm is, is, is blasphemy. He says, it is worse than not even believing God. Why? Because lukewarmness says, God, I believe in you, but you just don't inspire me. You just don't excite me. And so, so here we are thinking about God as Father, God worthy to be honored. And so just as it was in their day to be reminded of who he is, he is a father. He's also a master. Look again at verse six. There in the, in the middle of it, it says, if, if I am a master, where is your fear of me? Now, I know that's a that's uh, quite a topic to think of, to think of the fear of God. And I know on one hand, we, we're very quick, and I, I'm guilty of this too, to say, well, yeah, it is fear, but it's, it's also reverence, and it's also respect. And I know at times we're trying to give that fuller understanding of the fear of God, which I do believe is correct. In fact, even in uh, the uh, New American Standard Bible, they use the word respect instead of fear. But I, but I, but I don't want us to, to completely lose that understanding of the fear of God. Because if indeed he is the master and we think, how, how was it that Isaiah in Isaiah chapter 6 responded to, to, to God when he had this encounter at God's throne where, where he laid before God, recognizing his holiness, recognizing in a personal level his sinfulness. And there was this, this, this awe, there was this reverence, there was this respect there was also fear that was there. In Psalm 89, verses 6 through 8, it says, For who in the skies can compare with the Lord? Who among the heavenly beings is like the Lord? God is greatly feared in the counsel of the holy ones, more awe-inspiring than all who surround him. Lord God of armies, who is strong like you? 
Lord, your faithfulness surrounds you. Now, this is, this is uh, an interesting topic to be thinking of the fear of God, the fear of the Lord. In fact, last week we said that, uh, you know, the title of the message was When Love Grows Cold, that, that when, when our, our love for God grows cold, it affects our love for one another. And you can see even uh, from the standpoint of a, of a society, if there's no longer a love for God, here are the implications. Well, let's ask this question. What does this society look like that no longer fears God? What does it look like? Someone says ours. Yeah, I mean, you look around and you, you see what, what is happening. It's like, hey, one of the, one of the, the reasons is that, that, that our nation doesn't fear God. Now, you could look at it on an individual level as well, right? You, could, you, can, you can look at someone that is living without any fear of God. And what does that look like? They basically just do whatever they want, right? And so you multiply that out when it's not just an individual, but a society. Then you begin to see that uh, people that are living without any fear of God really have no boundaries. There's no, there's, 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 there's no lines uh, in which to stay. In fact, listen to Romans chapter 3, verse 10, beginning in verse 10. As it is written, there is no one righteous, not even one. There is no one who understands. There is no one who seeks God. All have turned away. All alike have been worthless. There is no one who does what is good, not even one. And so we, we, we see here that Paul is using a compilation of Old Testament verses really to describe the fallen nature of humanity, what it's like when we are separated from God that we don't even have a, a natural desire for him. We are, we are against him. We, we, we are not looking for him. We do not have righteousness on our own. It says that there in verse 10, not even one person. Now let's keep reading. They're described like this. Their throat is an open grave. They deceive with their tongues. Viper's venom is under their lips. Aren't you glad you came this morning? Yeah, you're like, Ryan, thank you for, for bringing this passage up, right? But, but isn't, it, isn't it telling to show that when we do not have the Lord in our lives and we're just in our own fallen state, yes, there's going to be deception. There is going to be words of bitterness that are similar to a viper's venom. Goes on to say, their mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Ruin and wretchedness are in their paths. And the path of peace they have not known. Okay, so here Paul is saying, this is what it looks like in the natural, unrighteous state of humanity. And then he tells us why. Look with me there at the end of verse 18. There is no fear of God before their eyes. And we can look around at the world and we can do series like, series, like messages on tough questions. Why do we see the things that we see in the world? Why do we have these issues that we are wrestling with? And I will tell you why. It's because there is no fear of God in their eyes any longer. And when a society or a nation 
or bring it even more closely down to a church or a family or an individual. When you, when you no longer have a fear of God, then it's just open season to do whatever the heart desires and whatever the mind can conceive. And so as, as Malachi is speaking to the people in that day about where is the fear, I think we could ask the same question. And it's probably even a question that, that at times we need to, to, to ask ourselves, do, are, we, are we thinking this way? Are we participating in this in light of God? With a with fear of God, a healthy, reverential fear. So that, let me just ask, do you see that connection? When there is no fear of God, no respect, no reverence for him or for his ways or for his word, then people live however they want to. And that was Malachi's day. In fact, we're going to be seeing, Lord willing, in the coming weeks, even how they have, they have called what is good evil, and what is evil they have called good. And so we're going to see how it just continues to flow out of this framework. Well, we've seen that God is the Father, God is the Master, but we also read in verse 6 that God is the Lord. In fact, the, the phrase that is used is Lord of Armies. Now, in the book of Malachi, short book, 24 times this title is used, the Lord of armies. Some versions say the Lord of hosts. And it's speaking of, of the, the magnitude of God's strength, that he is the leader of the heavenly hosts, that he is the leader of the heavenly angelic army, if you will, that he is a God of triumph, a God who is in charge of everything. And so, so all along the way, as Malachi is giving these words from God, he's reminding them that God's in charge. He's in charge. And that we, as his created beings, need, need to respond appropriately. Okay, so recognize the nature of God. That's the first point. And I think even for us today, as we enter into a time of worship, or as we move into a brand new week thinking, what are, how am I going to live? How am I going to invest my time? To do so in light of the nature of God is incredibly important. Secondly, we want to respect the name of God. Let's pick up at the end of verse 6 where it says, uh, Yet you ask, how have we despised your name? Verse 7, by presenting defiled food on my altar. Now, we think back in the Old Testament sacrificial system that the way in which they had been told to come and worship God was to bring an offering. And oftentimes those offerings involved a sacrifice, that they were to bring a, an animal that, that would be sacrificed, brought to the table of the Lord, and the, the, the priest would prepare the animal for a sacrifice. Now, now what kind of animal were they to bring? An unblemished, perfect animal. Now, an animal sacrifice was there to remind them that sin was important, that sin had separated them from God. It reminded them that sin was deadly. And so the death of an animal just shows how important that sin is. And yet it was also foreshadowing another sacrifice, right? Throughout the Old Testament, the prophets are speaking of a coming Messiah. And the Messiah would be one who is unblemished. Why? Because he would be without sin. 
So these unblemished animals were foreshadowing the fact that God would send one Messiah who would lay down his life and he would be that one sacrifice for all. In fact, he would fulfill and complete the sacrificial system. In fact, John the Baptist would even call Jesus by what word, what phrase? Lamb of God. And so so we think of the cross and we think about that final sacrifice, but we're back in the Old Testament and we're, we're seeing that the people were still living under that burden of bringing an unblemished animal to their time of worship. And so here's here's what he says. You have despised my name. How? By presenting defiled food on my altar. How have we defiled you, you ask? When you say the Lord's table is contemptible. When you present a blind animal for sacrifice, is it not wrong? And when you present a lame or sick animal, is it not wrong? And he says this, bring it to your governor. Right? He's like, you're bringing this worthless animal to me. Bring it to your governor. Would he want it? Let's continue. Would he be pleased with you or show you favor, asks the Lord of armies? And now plead for God's favor. Will he be gracious to us? Since this has come from your hands, will he show any of you favor, asks the Lord of armies? Let me just ask you right now, is this going real well for them? It doesn't seem like it, does it? Well, look at verse 10. I wish one of you would shut the temple doors so that you would no longer kindle a useless fire on my altar. I am not pleased with you, says the Lord of armies, and I will accept no offering from your hands. Verse 11, my name will be great among the nations. Listen to this. From the rising of the sun to its setting, incense and pure offerings will be presented in my name in every place because my name will be great among the nations. Now that's interesting because that, that's a, a word of prophecy that we are seeing fulfilled, that God's name is being made great among the nations, that that's a fulfillment even of what Christ commanded in the Great Commission. Verse 12, but you, you are profaning it when you say the Lord's table is defiled and its product, its food is contemptible. You also say, look, what a nuisance. And you scorn it, says the Lord of armies. You bring stolen, lame, or sick animals. You bring this as an offering. Now think about that. I mean, they want to bring a gift to God, so they steal something first and then give it to him? I mean, you know, just think about what that would look like in a modern context, right? I mean, you steal it so that you can have something to give as an offering. They bring the lame, the sick animal. He says, am I to accept that from your hands? Ask the Lord. The deceiver is cursed, and who has an acceptable male in his flock and makes a vow but sacrifices a defective animal to the Lord? For I, I am a great king, says the Lord of armies, and my name will be feared among the nations. Okay, that's the end of chapter one. So we've, we've worked through what is a, a very challenging portion of scripture because the people are, are being told by the Lord that they need to get things right. 
They need to get it right in the way in which they are worshiping the Lord because they were told repeatedly through the Old Testament what kind of animal to bring. But they were, in essence, bringing that which didn't, didn't, uh, didn't matter much to them. It, it was not something that they, that they uh, really wanted in the first place. So they said, here, why don't we just give it to God? Do any of you all remember the, the radio personality Paul Harvey? Um, the famous word, you know, now you know the rest of the story. You know, I remember listening to that when I was a, a kid and, and he'd give the news and so forth. But uh, he had a, a story one time about a particular Thanksgiving season. And uh, not, not too long from, from, uh, from this time of the year, actually. And he said that a woman called the hotline for the Butterball Turkey Company. You know they have one? And you can call a number to get some tips on, on how, to, how to prepare the turkey. And uh, this, this lady had a particular question about how long the turkey had been frozen in her deep freeze. She said, we've, we've had this, this turkey in the freezer for 23 years. D- do you think it'll be okay for us to cook it? And uh, the guy on the other end of the line said, well, if it's, if it's been under zero degrees, it's, it's probably not going to hurt you if you eat it. But but it's probably not going to taste very good. And the lady said, yeah, that's what my husband and I were thinking too. We, we, it's okay. We think we'll just give it to the church. So <laughs> I know we can't really do potlucks during a pandemic, but doesn't that just make you really think about all the potlucks you've had in the years, right? Um, what, what was she giving an example of? I don't really want it, so let's just, let's, just, let's just give it away. Let's just give it to so-and-so, give it to the church, give it to what, wherever. Well, back in, Exodus, or back in uh, Malachi, that's what the people were doing. They really didn't want these animals. So they were saying, ah, let's just use this one as our offering. And uh, again, these were to be animals that were picturing a sinless Messiah without blemish. And yet when they brought these animals that were lame or injured, they were not giving their best. In fact, some of these could have even been like animal carcasses in the field. Like if they had an animal that was, that was, that was attacked in the field, they might have said, oh, let's just bring this carcass in and see if we can use that as a sacrifice. It'd be, uh, it would be it would, it would, you know, ter- a terrible idea just in, in trying to give whatever they really didn't want. But God had given instruction about what to do with these kinds of animals. In Exodus chapter 22, it says, you must not eat the meat of a mauled animal found in the field. Throw it to the dogs. Now, now why would there be a verse like this? Because God was protecting them, right? Saying, don't eat the roadkill, right? It's not going to be good for you. It'll make you sick. What do you do with it? You throw it to the dogs. What were the people in Malachi's day doing? They were giving giving it to God. Really, you could just think of it this way. They were bringing dog food to the altar. That's what it was. Had no meaning to them. No meaning. Now, let's just think for a minute about our day and age. Can we at times also approach the Lord in a half-hearted way? Can we just give him the leftovers? And I'm not just thinking about things or money, but even in our time, in our service, in our attitudes. To not have that right focus upon what it is that we are doing. Let me share with you quickly an example of one who wanted to give a sacrifice to the Lord, and this is King David. Back in 2 Samuel, there was an account that the nation of Israel was undergoing a plague, and he was told by a prophet, 
prophet by the name of Gad, that if he would, if he would give an offering, a sacrifice to the Lord, that God would heal their land, that he would, he would remove this, this plague. And so uh, he was told to go to uh, uh, a property that was owned by a man named Arona. 2 Samuel 24, beginning in verse 18. Gad, the prophet, came to David that day and said to him, go up and set up an altar to the Lord on the threshing floor of Arona, the Jebusite. David went up in obedience to Gad's command, just as the Lord had commanded. Arona looked down and saw the king and his servants coming toward him. So he went out and paid homage to the king with his face to the ground. So Arona sees the king coming from a distance. And Arona said, why has my Lord the king come to his servant? And David replied, to buy the threshing floor from you in order to build an altar to the Lord so the plague on the people may be halted. And Arona, Arona responded. He said to David, my Lord the king may take whatever he wants and offer it. Here are the oxen for a burnt offering and the threshing sledges and ox yokes for the wood. So he's basically saying, here's the animals for the sacrifice. You're going to need wood for a fire. Just take the, the yoke that we put on the oxen. I mean, something of great value, right? He's saying, use that as kindling. Burn the sacrifice with, with this wood. Your majesty, Arona, gives everything here to the king. Then he said to the king, may the Lord your God accept you. Now look at David's response. The king answered Arona, no. No, I insist on buying it from you for a price. For I will not offer to the Lord my God burnt offerings that cost me nothing. David bought the threshing floor and the oxen for 20 ounces of silver. He built an altar to the Lord there and offered burnt offerings and fellowship offerings. Then the Lord was receptive to prayer for the land, and the plague on Israel ended. Now, why am I sharing this passage with you? I want to draw a contrast between the heart of David in this setting and the people in Malachi's day. Do you see the difference? You have on one hand one, one man who's just eager to, to have a legitimate sacrifice from his heart, sacrificial Something that he says, I don't want to give God something that will cost me nothing. I want to have personal investment here. And then on the other hand, you've got people saying, oh, just, just, just throw it to God. Throw it to the altar. It's just a nuisance anyway, right? That's the, that's the contrast. And what does God say and think about half-hearted worship? Well, we read verse 10. I wish one of you would shut the temple doors so that you would no longer kindle a useless fire on my altar. I am not pleased with you, says the Lord of armies, and I will accept no offering from your hands. Interesting that God would give them insight into how he was responding to their ritualistic, heartless worship. In fact, it reminds me, of what was told to the lukewarm church in Revelation chapter 3, when it said they were neither hot nor cold, and that God would do what? Do you remember? Spew them out of his mouth. He's like, I'm not receiving this. I'm not, I'm not receiving and responding to that. So 
Let's wrap it up. What can we, as New Testament believers, people on the other side of the cross, where we don't have the sacrificial system in place, how can we find some principles here for today? How can we recognize the nature of God? How can we respect the name of God? Yes, in our time of gathered worship, but even throughout the week and whatever it is that we're doing, to be reminded that God is a father, that he is a master, that he is a Lord. But there's one more description. We read it at the end of verse 14, where he says, for I am a great king. You see, when we think about worship, we have to remember the object of our worship. And Malachi has given us a lot to think about in terms of who it is that we're worshiping. So maybe if we catch ourselves on a given Sunday or maybe even on a given Monday morning, opening up the word, ready to start the week, and we're just not fully into it, maybe we can say, now, who is it? Who is it that I'm praying to? Who is it that gave me this word? Yes, a master. Yes, a Lord, a king. And even one who says he is my heavenly father. In fact, I was reminded of the Lord's Prayer. How does the Lord's Prayer begin? Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. How does the Lord's Prayer end? For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. We get the idea. Yes, he is our heavenly Father. Yes, he is a great king. As God's children, let us give him our love. As God's servants, let us give him willingly our labor. And as God's subjects, may we be found giving him our loyalty. So what happens in those occasions where we feel that the flame of our faith is burning dimly? Let us ask God, And maybe even for some of us today, this is a message that we needed because we need to ask God to rescue us from half-hearted worship. We need to ask God to help us make it a priority once again, to make him a priority, to refocus on the character and nature of God, again, who is not only the master, Lord, and King, but also who desires to be our heavenly Father. Isn't that good news? Good news that all the, the power and strength and might that he has, he also has this great love, this great compassion, this great mercy to say, come unto me. Would you bow with me as we pray? Our great God, you indeed are a master Lord and King. And we know that you are deserving to be honored You are deserving to be worshiped, not only with our songs and our words, but Lord, you are deserving of our lives. So Father, we pray that today, as we've opened up your word, as we've seen it, in many ways, what are some some strong words, that Lord, we could receive them, that we could receive them from a heavenly Father who wants to guide us into properly understanding who you are. So Father, forgive us when we are distracted. 
Forgive us when we let the things of this world cloud out or cover up the way that we view you. God, would you make yourself known in our midst that that we can respond in a way that is appropriate, that we can serve you, that we can live for you, and that we can do so with our hearts in it. So God, would you replenish, would you give to us what we need so that we can love you and serve you and worship you. Father, we thank you for the love that you had for us. As we think about the Old Testament sacrifices and what all they had to go through at that time, we know by standing on the other side of the cross that you have provided. You've provided a way where no other sacrifices are needed because you've given your one and only son. It's in him, Lord, that we approach you today. It's in him that we worship you and serve you. And we pray this in his name. All of God's people say, Amen. Why don't we stand together as we sing, we give words of worship to our great King.